the Athletes in the Arts podcast, hosted by Stephen Karaginas and Yasi Ansari. Hi, everyone. This is the Athletes in the Arts podcast. Thank you for being here today. I'm Stephen Karaginas, a performing arts medicine physician. And I'm Yasi Ansari, registered dietitian specializing in athletic performance. And today, our podcast is sponsored by the American College of Sports Medicine. Our theme is, are there really athletes in the arts? And so when you think about athletes and performing artists, really, we always kind of think of them as separate. One is just staying there performing. The other person is like, you know, the the pinnacle of, uh, of physical performance and, and power and speed and endurance. But really, there's a big movement now in research and medicine that discusses how performing artists are really a lot like athletes. Right. And they're a lot like athletes in so many ways. Not only the hours that they put into their performance, not only the hours that they put into their performance, but also the mental preparedness that it takes to succeed in their sport um, and their nutritional needs. I mean, in dance medicine, just think about like, if you're a baseball player and you're you're practicing all over and over and over to get ready to go hit a baseball, and then you do it three times out of 10, you're an all-star. But if you're a dancer and you hit your routine perfectly three times out of 10, I don't think you get to a fourth one. You're already off stage. Right. So, so the drive for perfection in some of these uh, perform- in, in performing artists is really unique. And it actually probably even adds more pressure uh, in, in the physical and mental aspects than even athletics itself. So to discuss these issues in more depth today, we brought in two fellows of the American College of Sports Medicine. One is Randy Dick. He's a fellow in the American College of Sports Medicine and co-founder of Athletes and the Arts. He worked for 20 years with the NCAA, managing its sports medicine and, and injury prevention programs. We also brought in Dr. Timothy Lightfoot. He's currently the Debbie and Mike Hilliard Endowed Professor of Kinesiology and the director of the City and J.L. Huffines Institute for Sports Medicine and Human Performance at Texas A&M University. Randy and Tim, so exciting to have you both here with us this morning. Well, I'm excited to be with you both. Yep, great, great to be here. So the American College of Sports Medicine, it was founded in 1954 with more than 25,000 members from all over the, the world. And I want to get to know more about ACSM. I want you guys to share some of the the key aspects of this amazing organization and a highly respected one. Um, so, you know, you guys have the stage. Well, ACSM has been uh, my basically parent organization uh, for many years. Uh, I was a researcher, exercise physiologist, uh, and bio- biomechanics person in college, and uh, ACSM was was my home. Uh, it's a very uh, diverse organization with a lot of f- folks ranging from uh, personal trainers to physicians and researchers. And uh, the value that I get in going to the meetings and being involved in it is really the breadth of subjects that are covered um, from very applied science to very uh, to very basic science. So there's a little bit of everything there, and you get to uh, share and integrate ideas with lots of different people. Yeah, American College of Sports Medicine has been a leader 
uh, in sports medicine and exercise physiology since the 50s. Uh, in particular, ACSM was one of the first organizations, and I think it was the first organization, to offer certifications for exercise professionals. And so we still have a very vibrant certification program to credential individuals to work with various populations of individuals, whether they be athletes or whether they be healthy or whether they be clinical cases. And so not only do we support researchers, uh, we support education, and we also support uh, credentialing in the clinical field. So ACSM is, uh, it has a big tent, and it welcomes a lot of different people into that big tent. It does, and I might make other one other point that the the word sports medicine is in the title, uh, but basically ACSM is about wellness and activity and the value of that in all different types of professions, whether it be sport or general uh, populations, or in the case of today, maybe performing artists. So, uh, although sports medicine is in the title, it it actually takes what we've learned in sports medicine, but applies it to a much broader population. So when you guys talk about members, you're talking like, you know, doctors, physiologists, cardiologists, but also like trainers, athletic trainers, fitness professionals, dietitians, uh, the whole gamut, right? And a lot and a lot of students on top of that. So um, it, much like Randy, uh, American College of Sports Medicine has been my professional home since I was a student, a graduate student. Um, and so there's a lot of master students, Ph.D. students, uh, as well as professors, uh, physicians. Um, uh, performing artists, and a variety of other people involved. I think you guys are even responsible for the exercise as medicine concept that uh, has been very popular now in the last few years, but people talk about it a lot and don't really know what's behind that concept. So what is behind the idea of med exercise is medicine? Well, it was uh, my perspective. It was an initiative by one of our, our former presidents, Bob Salas, uh, and uh, at, from Kaiser Permanente out in California, Yasuo Neck of the Woods, and um, basically the concept of making exercise is a vital sign, so that when you go into the physician and they're checking your blood pressure and they're checking everything else, they should also be checking in on how active you are and make it a vital sign that is something that is is something that is evaluated every um, time you go see a physician, and from that you have the ability to. Uh, uh, to, to sort of apply it. There's also been a lot of work to show how exercise, regular exercise, has uh, a great uh, impact on reducing the risk of chronic disease, mental health, or mental, mental health problems, uh, a variety of different health issues just by a regular uh, uh, dose of exercise in the same way as you might have a regular dose of a particular uh, prescription or drug. Tim? Your thoughts? And that's in, and Randy's hit it in a nutshell, but it really reflects a sea change in our field, uh, starting about the mid 90s when the realization was that this isn't just for athletes what we do, this is for general health. And so it really moved over from being a sports medicine kind of idea to a public health. Uh, effort on our part. And that's what exercise is, medicine is, is really incorporates and encapsulates that public health message of exercise is good for everyone, not just for people that go out and want to exercise or shoot basketballs or whatever they want to do. But exercise actually is an integral part of everyone's health, no matter whether you're out walking the dog or actually you're out running distance. There's a lot of research now talking about very specific conditions like hypertension, cardiac disease, um, being treated by these concepts of exercise and proper nutrition. Is that a lot of the research you guys are doing? 
Well, that's certainly a lot of research that has been done and is out there. I mean, there's simple research that shows uh, activity as little as 30 minutes a day for five days a week can cut your mortality in half. Uh, and so those are the kinds of uh, sea change studies that have been done, not only in uh, quantity of life, but quality of life, uh, again, with uh, conditions such as hypertension. One of the things you mentioned is cancer. Uh, exercise is one of the few preventative things that people can do to offset the risk of breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer in particular, uh, up to about 24%, I think, for each of those. And so those are the kinds of studies that are done uh, by the scientists and the practitioners that are involved in ACSM. So certainly exercise is medicine and great for everyone. I honestly feel like exercise has been my medicine this past year during the pandemic. I had this whole exercise routine, right? Like I would go and walk around the neighborhood, meet all the neighbors. And it was my way of just disconnecting from what was going on in the real world and, and just med using that time to meditate too while you're walking, whatever that might look like for each person. But I truly believe exercise is medicine, no matter what time of year you're in and no matter what's going on. Even for mental health too, for sure. Absolutely. So, so how do you how do you guys see this concept applying to performing artists then? So we've been talking a lot about performing artists and the stress they've been having from the COVID uh, period of time, but also just in general, the stresses of performing. How do you see exercise as medicine for them? Well, Steve, I think from my perspective, the first thing is, you know, does a performing artist uh, in their activity recognize that they are doing things that are maybe very similar to what uh, an active human being, whether it be a sport athlete or someone else is doing. Um, and as they are doing their craft, thinking about the muscles, repetitive use, the amount of uh, heart, uh, you know, the, their heart rate, lung capacity, the types of uh, activities that they are doing, and what does that do to their physiological system? Uh, and if you acknowledge that there is, um, a relevance there than being active outside of their actual performance time to help for long-term health and possibly to improve performance um, might be a concept that performing artists should consider. Yeah, and I think that performers in general don't think of themselves as athletes because uh, they, the public in general doesn't see it as a very strenuous kind, kind of activity. As a matter of fact, our American College's compendium of physical activity actually lists music playing as a light activity. And so in, in some aspects, what society has seen and what performers themselves have uh, uh, taken, taken in is that this is not very physically demanding, so they don't think of themselves as athletes. The problem with that is that there's not a whole lot of data out there, and that's one of the reasons that we got very interested into in, in the whole topic of how physiologically demanding performing is, is because there wasn't a lot of information out there. And, and again, I'm thinking primarily in the terms of music playing. Uh, certainly, there are other performing types of standards or types of performing that are much more extraneous, like dance and so forth, that we ought to automatically think that these people are athletes. Um, but in particular, in my, in my work, we've been interested very much in musicians and uh, whether or not they're, they, what they do is physically demanding. And so in that aspect, and we'll, we'll, I know we'll talk about some of this a little bit more, but in that aspect, as you start to look at the data that is coming out, 
what we are starting to work with is musicians and help them understand that what they are doing is physically demanding. Um, it's certainly mentally demanding as well. And the combination of both of those things can actually lead to some bit, uh, uh, positive health benefits as well. And, I, and that's the whole genesis of uh, what Randy has put together with Athletes in the Arts and the American College of Sports Medicine is trying to increase the awareness amongst not only the performers themselves, but also scientists in that performance is actually can be considered athletic and it does have the physiological stresses that we also often consider with these types of athletic endeavors. And if you going back to my background, I used to work with the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and we would run an injury surveillance system to look at the injuries that might show up in the sport collegiate sport world, and we would use that information then to modify rules to make the activities safer. Well, there's not been as much prevalence or epidemiology data done on the performing arts world, but of the data that we do have, and Tim referred to a little of this. I mean, a couple of studies have said up to 75% of orchestra instrumentalists will develop at least one musculoskeletal disorder uh, from playing during their lifetime. 50% of folks may have some form of hearing loss. Uh, a lot of people are reporting pain. And if any of you have ever seen a drum corps or marching band um, and see how long and what they do and carrying the weight of those instruments in the heat of the day in the environment, um, may, they are facing injury risks and environmental risk in the very same way as, as sport athletes are active human beings. Uh, yet we're oftentimes not recognizing or trying to address the issues that they face. I want to add on to that a little bit, Randy. Growing up as a dancer, I, you know, there were times that, you know, referring to yourself as an athlete wasn't always the positive way to look at it. But what I will say is looking back, we were totally athletes, right? And we were training for many, many hours a day, getting injured, not always fueling the way that we needed to fuel for the amount of energy that we were expending and the hours of rehearsals and, and shows and hydration, you know, don't even get me started on hydration. We'll definitely be talking about hydration in another podcast right. episode, but all of these things, you know, this is all athletic performance, right? This is all what is needed for um, high-level elite training. And whether that's a performance artist or someone that's labeled an athlete, um, all of this pertains to each one of them. Um, now, Tim, I want you to talk a little bit more about the physical stress in singing. Um, I did choir for a little bit <laughs> during um, high school. And, you know, I just want you to, to share more about the research that is out there when it comes to the physical stress in singing, because I know that there is physical stress in singing. Yeah, throughout my career, I've always been interested in uh, the physiological stressors that uh, apply to a lot of different things, not just our normal stick and ball sports. I was a stick and ball athlete uh, growing up, but I'm, I was also very interested in, in other things as well. And over my career, I've always been interested in kind of unusual exercise physiology situations. We've done a lot of work with race race car drivers. Um, uh, incidentally, there's always that question about whether race car drivers are athletes athletes or not. Uh, so it's, it's a, a kind of a very similar kind of question there. Um, but because I also played the bass guitar and have played in public quite a bit over the last, especially over the last 15, 20 years, this really kind of came back into mind about, and musicians in particular and vocalists in particular, are they are they being physiologically stressed? Again, the literature is very, very thin on this out there. And most of the literature suggests that it's very light 
activity. Uh, what's interesting is starting about 2008, there came a series of studies by a variety of different uh, researchers looking at this. Um, kind of the first one that kind of caught my attention in 2008 was from Anesta, where they actually went into an orchestra in Spain, the National Orchestra, as a matter of fact, and measured heart rates uh, in their orchestra musicians, 62 of them, both males and females, uh, during both rehearsal and performance. And it's shockingly, they found that most of these um, performers, their peak heart rates were almost 80% of their max uh, during their performances. Uh, it was a little bit less during rehearsal, and certainly performances actually increased their heart rate responses because of just the performance types of anxieties that we see. Uh, and there have been a few studies like that that have uh, continued on. We did uh, a study where we looked at uh, heavy metal bands, classic rock bands, Western bands, and contemporary Christian bands. And uh, what we saw amongst those was that their heart rates ranged from about 52% during rehearsals. Uh, during performance, it was like up to 59% of their max. Now, many people would say, well, 59% of your max is not a real strenuous workload. You're certainly not up at 80, 85%, which we'd really think of as vigorous. But what we have to also consider is most of these musicians are performing over a long period of time. Uh, one of the bands we monitored, they averaged, uh, if I recall the band in particular, they averaged something like 65% of their max heart rate over a four-hour gig. And so this is a four-hour time period where they're performing and they're maintaining this heart rate this whole time. So this, in many cases, if I think about it from an exercise physiology standpoint, given the length of time that these musicians perform and their heart rate intensities, not only are they working moderately or vigorously, but they're working long enough that there can be some training effects as well on this. Uh, now, that is one area, and if there's anybody listening, that they want to really tap into an area that needs to be researched, and that is can music, regular music for playing, be considered a physical training? Uh, there's only one article that I'm aware of that was published in Netherlands where they compared music students that played two hours a day with a matched group of uh, individuals who did not play music. And then they found that the, the instrumentalists, the, the music players, actually were in much better condition physio physiologically, better heart rates, lower, lower blood pressures, and a variety of other kinds of metrics. So I think that uh, certainly playing music, uh, especially when we think of musicians, playing music is much more stressful than people think from a physiological some positive physiological benefits as well so what if you're playing in a band and all of a sudden you are you're the you're playing guitar and you're running around and you're singing I mean, that must be like even more, you know, a higher heart rate and higher stress levels. Well, you would think it? so. Uh, we actually, in our research, we found that instrument type uh, was uh, not quite significant. Uh, so the type of instrument you play. And often, actually, interesting what you say, Steve, is that um, what has been shown in the literature is that people that play wind instruments, like trumpets and trombones in particular, really have high stress levels. Because, again, oftentimes they're doing either circular breathing or doing valsalva maneuvers, which really can jack up the blood pressure and the heart rate. As a matter of fact, there, there was one study in particular in a marching band uh, situation, um, and I, I don't remember the authors off the top of my head, but it came out about 10 years ago, and they showed that 91%, they, they looked at a whole marching band, 91% of the wind instrument players had a uh, some type of cardiac abnormality that occurred during performance, during marching. And they didn't know if that was the result of dehydration or the marching 
or it was the wind instruments, but certainly it was localized in the wind instrument group. 91%. 91% was, was the number. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. No one would ever think that would be the case. That's incredible. No. And the good thing is most of those were, those were all young people and they're, <laughs> they're pre, uh, they, they are uh, pretty tolerant to those kinds of things, but it, it becomes an issue when you think about older wind instrument players, people who played the trumpet right. in particular and so forth. Um, and so especially sax players, saxophone players who do a lot of circular breathing, uh, there can be some real cardiac potential issues there as well if they're not careful. So again, it's just one of those things that you have to be aware of. And I think most of the musicians are aware of those things. They realize that it's taxing, but the real world, the people that watch don't really understand what's going on physiologically. And Tim, you brought up a good point about the uh, age group here. Uh, performing artists are really uh, stretched from five, six, seven years old. So pediatric issues on that end, all the way up to people that are very old, but still want to continue to play. And so the physiological issues need to be tracked when we do that. Now, I'll do a shameless plug for the Athletes in the Arts website, but we do have a wonderful video of, uh, of Dr. Lightfoot doing uh, a, a, a talk called Rock and Phys Physiology. And he, uh, he, he actually uh, has a heart rate monitor on while he's playing. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's a nice thing to see how he's, his heart rate reacts to him playing. So encourage people to look at that if they want to. I would encourage no one to no one to watch that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not a nice thing to see, huh? <laughs> no, at least I at no. least at least I didn't sing during that presentation like I did during other ones, so I really didn't embarrass myself. I'm sorry, yes. You're good. And and coming from the nutritional aspect of vocalist, I just want to share a little bit about that, you know, cuz I'm a dietitian, but um on the Athletes in the Arts website, we Something that we're trying to work on is creating fact sheets for vocalists too, because that is, you know, a just like the average, I don't like to call them average, but the elite athlete where their nutrient timing is so important. We want to make sure that not only are people meeting their needs, but they're having the right kinds of fuel before performance so it doesn't disrupt their GI tract or give them discomfort. And for vocalists too, to help protect those vocal cords, it's really important the kinds of foods that you're putting into your body before competition, um, just before a performance. So I think bringing awareness to all of that and just maximizing the general wellness and stamina of um, the vocalist will be so important to get that information out. Well, and there. that's you, you know, you point out a really tough thing for artists when they're on the road is finding appropriate nutrition. Uh, one of the funny things, I don't know if any of you watch or listen to Lyle Love it, but during one of his uh, live recordings, he actually jokes about the inability to find appropriate Mexican food on the road being from texas he's always looking for good ta good tacos but he said you know it's hard it's hard to eat on the road and uh, there have been there have been very there's been very little effort in that area so that's certainly a very uh, important point and i would like to shout out to to Jeannie morton who's also a, a member um, of PAMA and who has done a lot of work with voice and with nutrition stuff as well in, in Los Angeles and, um, is a, a good acquaintance of our, a good friend of ours, athletes in the arts and, uh, has uh, actually published a couple of papers on that, I believe. And so that's very interesting and very great topic, Yazzie, that, uh, needs to be addressed, I think, for athletes. And not to mention at the end of performance too, right? They're, they're done around midnight. 1 a.m., 2 a.m. It's like, what's available? It's like they have 
they, their nerves may be getting to them right before performance. So they may not actually be fueling enough for um, their performance. But then after, it's like, you know, there's not that many healthy options available after midnight, right? So uh, tackling this will be really important. And looking at the research that's out there is key too. Well, listening to like what, you know, what you guys are saying, Tim and Yassi. So Tim, you're talking about like four hours of performance where your heart rate's elevated, which means you're burning calories at a higher level. So when I ran the Boston Marathon many years ago, uh, we they talked, we had a conference that talked about nutrition and supplementing your calories during the marathon. But then you're talking about nutrition with vocalists and, and performers. What, what about if you're burning up calories so fast that you don't have enough calories during that four hour period? We're talking about like, you know, hydration and nutrition during rehearsals and performance. And I don't think anybody really ever talks about that. I would agree. But the musicians, when you bring that up, that's what they, they, they say, well, that's what beer is for. <laughs> so I, I don't think that's appropriate nutrition. Oh, and no. what is, what is, <laughs> what is, what is interesting though, I, I'm going to put it, I'm going to, I'm going to pop that bubble right quick is that one of the things when we worked with these bands, we also made sure that we did dietary surveys. So we knew what they were eating and drinking both during I mean, before, during, and after performances, because we thought that that might be uh, an influence on this. We saw no uh, no relationship whatsoever. And actually, most of the bands, um, I would say actually 99% of the band members were very good with their nutrition. And they didn't take, number one, illicit substances, but they did not drink excessively. Because as some of them said, hey, it'll, it'll uh, influence the way I perform, and I don't want to do that. Um, and so, but no, Steve, you make a great point about during the performance as well. We think about it for long-term events. Otherwise, why why don't we think about it during concerts and so forth? Well, Yasi, you danced before and you probably, you know, you can speak to this, of course, about how you're not allowed to eat or drink hardly anything during dance rehearsal. Right. And I had a, you know, the choreographer I worked with and the, um, just the instructor I worked with, she didn't allow us to hydrate during rehearsals oh and practices. And this is like back in the eighties the slash early nineties. So this is all kind of the, the importance of hydration is we're just the importance of drilling hydration into a dancer and into a vocalist is, I don't want to call it necessarily new, but it's something that people really have to be mindful of and start incorporating into their day to day. And not to mention, you know, when you, when it comes to dancing too, I'll be honest, still, when I go to a dance class, I, it's really hard for me to eat a lot before the dance class. Cause you actually feel it. So being really intentional about what time you're doing it and how long before the performance that you're taking in that nutrition will be key, but also having hydration with you and to really be sipping on whatever it is that you're hydrating with, whether that's an electrolyte beverage, um, enhanced beverage or, or water every 15 to 20 minutes, you know, take being mindful about it. And for a dancer and someone who is, you know, on stage a lot, using the breaks you have between segments to, to go and to sip on that, on that hydration will be really important. So I have a question, if I may, for for Tim, if if Steve, if you'll let me and Yasi ask it, um, Tim, on the what's the mental health side of things when a performer is up there? And I know you're not uh, uh, maybe been on the road as long as maybe Bruce Springsteen or something like that. But uh, um, what 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 are you what are you thinking when you're out there performing? Are you actually stressed out about how well you sound or you just having fun and i know it's probably different in your environment but what are the mental challenges of going out there and being a performing artist 
Randy, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I think that's one that's not looked at often. And first of all, I, I'll say for the audience uh, purpose, there is actually some fairly good literature about performance anxiety, uh, stage fright, as many of us know it, um, as what it does to basic physiological parameters such as heart rate. For example, there was a study looked at musicians and that uh, were going into a music school and they actually subdivided these music musicians into um, musicians that had anxiety issues versus those that didn't. And those, those musicians that had anxiety issues when they performed, their heart rates were on average over 20 beats higher per minute than the non-anxious individuals. And I know one of the big messages also oftentimes in, in music schools is to help uh, to increase your vagal tone, which will help uh, help you control that stage fright issue. But certainly stage fright is an issue that occurs and happens to a lot of different musicians. I know Bar Barbara Streisand in particular is famous for having a severe stage fright so that she couldn't even perform. And I know for, for me personally, it's different depending on what I'm doing. If I'm singing, I actually become a quivering bowl of jello. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I sing pretty well uh, when I don't ha when I'm not in front of people. Uh, it's actually well enough to be asked to to be, be a lead vocalist on some songs. But then once I get in front of people and you start looking at those people, it's like, I just kind of fall apart. My heart rate jumps way up and my knees start, actually the worst part is my knees start knocking. And uh, that's a real thing. And, uh, and if I'm trying to play on top of that, I mean, it's like, I don't even remember what I've, I've got a guitar in my hand or a drum or what. Um, and, but what's interesting is that changes when I, when I have the bass in my, in my hand and I'm playing uh, a bass lick or a, because I, and I don't know if it's because I'm so much more comfortable with the bass and it's a way of hiding for me. Uh, I make my living lecturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a professor. I, I talk in front of people all the time. Um, and so, but it is that thought of just actually singing. Um, and that just really drives, drives me nuts mentally. Um, and I know that our other performers that, um, that have this. I know Gerald Veasley, a friend of mine who's a fabulous bass player, has talked about this and actually has given given talks about this for us uh, at Texas A and M. Well, that's an interesting point because we talk a lot with athletic development. There are some athletes out there who come out, like say uh, a kid can throw hard, so they try to make him a pitcher, and he can throw fine in you know warmups, but he gets out in the field. You know, in baseball, all the attention is drawn to the pitcher, and some kids. They have anxiety. They can't mentally handle that pressure. But you put them in the outfield, they feel just fine. And so it seems like a very uh, consistent link between performing artists and athletes where if you have a, like a person who's singing, the whole show is focused on the lead singer. Some folks are born for it, and they can just do it like, like uh, nobody's business. And other folks, like you're talking about yourself, it's uh, they have a higher heart rate. They have much higher levels of anxiety. It seems like a very consistent point that even in the performing arts world and athletic world, certain positions have certain, require certain mental makeups and, and certain um, stressors that need to be handled different ways. Yeah, it was, it's interesting you bring this up because uh, as an example, I watched a documentary on the rock band Queen recently uh, and that search for a new lead singer and, and they had uh, interviews with Freddie Mercury on uh, from when he was in his heyday and he talked about one and the interview asked, don't, don't you get nervous in front of that many people? And he said, no, he said, the more, the better. And that was seemed to be a hallmark for him is the more people, the better he performed. And uh, so he just he was wired up to handle that differently. Now, I'll put a plug in for exercise training, because, again, 
handling stage fright often also deals with your vagal tone and or your parasympathetic activity. And if you're in good shape, if you're in good physical condition, you've got uh, more vagal tone to kind of buffer those kinds of anxieties. Um, and so certainly one of the, one of the things we always talk to performers about is if you're anxious, let's get, get you in better shape. And that will also increase your confidence as well, which is also a part of that. Excellent. So one of the barriers we think though, is with performing artists is a lot of times they think of themselves not as athletes and they don't want to adopt any of the ideas or concepts of athletes. Why do you think that is? Why is there still like a for some performing artists, a stigma about not wanting to be considered an athlete. Well, I think it comes back to what Yazi said a while ago. She said, there's sometimes you just don't, you know, you didn't want to be thought of as an athlete because I think sometimes that athlete stereotype brings negative connotations in some aspects. And I think that as many of us have gone through the business, we've been in the business and we've worked to expand this definition of what an athlete is. And really an athlete is someone who is physically prepared to take on the task of their performance, whether it be catching a football or whether it be singing, whether it be playing the drums. Um, And so as we've brought, I think as we've been able to broaden that definition, I think more people have adapted that. And I think it's like I said at the beginning, I think as we make people aware of the physiological stresses they're undergoing, um, they also start to think of themselves in a different manner. I know the bands that we worked with, none of them had ever done anything like this, and they were all very excited to see it. And once we started showing them the data, they said, wow, I can't believe it. They said, well, that explains why I'm really exhausted after we play. But on the other hand, you know, that's kind of a good thing, and they got excited by that. And I'll throw one other thing in there that, that we have hypothesized. I don't think it's been proven yet, but it's known that that exposure to higher heart rates for a longer period of time actually can provide cardio protection. So it can protect your heart from heart attacks and a variety of other things. And so we have actually hypothesized that musicians, especially ones that play longer gigs, and most of them play two, three, four hours gigs, that they're actually undergoing some form of cardio protection. Um, and uh, I haven't been able to get, we haven't been able to get any kind of epidemiological data on working musicians, but it would be really interested, and I would encourage anybody listening to, to go through the data if you can find it. Let's look at the rates of heart attacks in musicians versus other kinds of uh, labor occupations. And that, so that might be, might be kind of fun to do. Yeah, and I want to add on a little bit to that as well, because I work with a lot of athletes, both performing arts athletes and um other athletes like, you know, runners and, and athletes that play volleyball, for example. Uh, and something that I see that's so common amongst all of them, whether you be a dancer, a runner, a basketball player is mental toughness and mental preparedness. Like they all believe that that's what's number one to succeed in their sport. And when I see some of the choreographers that I work with, they're like, oh, I have competition this weekend and I just have to make sure all my athletes are ready to go. Like this is something that is not, you know, this, this doesn't, this doesn't separate them. This is something that actually connects them and what is going to be so successful in them being the best, um, athlete and performer that they can be. So I, I try to remind, I think that would be a great way of an element to remind um, both performing arts athletes and athletes about why they're so similar to one another. Mm-hmm. And I would just throw out, um, recognizing what Tim said, I like, I really like what he said about, you know, an athlete really is 
getting ready for a performance, no matter what that performance would be. Yep. But when we f- first sort of put together Athletes and the Arts, which is the way the title of our organization, and the Arts, it used to be Athlete in the Arts. And when we first did this in 2009 or 2010, there was pushback at that time from some of the performers that we were talking to that they did not consider themselves athletes and did not want to be considered the athletes. So that's why we changed the name to athletes and the arts as opposed to athletes in the arts. I think today it, it makes more sense to be in the arts, but, but that is, that was exact real feedback from performing artists when we were bouncing that idea around. Well, and I'd like to, I'm sorry, I'd like to loop back to what Randy asked. I, I didn't quite finish answering the question or I think Steve asked. And, but I think Yazi, you said it really perfectly when you talked about the confidence and one of the earlier questions is what was what's in your mind when you're playing or you're performing? And I can't really speak for other performers. I mean, I've asked and you you ask these questions, but I know that if I'm confident, for example, in a certain song, when I walk when I walk out and we're playing that song, I'm having fun. I'm listening to the other band members because I, I know that that's that's rocking and and uh, I'm not worried about what I'm playing. However, if there's a song that I'm not real confident about, and I've got one song in mind right now that has always given me trouble because the rhythm for the bass player is about 400 beats per minute. And you think about it, 400 beats per minute, you are strumming along there really quick. And, and, and I know when I play that song, man, I'm always focused on hit the right note, hit the right note, hit, don't screw up, don't screw up. And more often than not, I'll screw up on that song because I'm not confident with that song. And so that, that changes my mindset in that moment. Um, and I think that that's in, in listening to Gerald and some of the other people talk about stage fright and anxiety on, on stage. That's what they talk about is confidence in performance. If you know you're going to go out and kill it, whether it be an athlete, whether it be a performer, you're more likely to do it and you'll be in the moment. You'll have a good time. You'll be in that flow state that they talk about and you'll go forward. And uh, so that's, that's part of it. So that was a great point. Yeah. about the confidence. Yeah. And something else I do want to add to this is Randy, I think, you know, if we look back with athletes in the arts compared to athletes and the arts, I wonder that, you know, when I look back and I, I think, you know, in the dance world, like if someone had told me that I was an athlete when I was 10 years old, I would have thought of athletes as male athletes. Like I would have, I would have looked at it as a more male dominant sport. And now I feel like there's so much that's coming out with female sport foundations and and different um, organizations that are bringing more awareness to female sports, which I I love and, and just females in sports. So I wonder that if, they had asked that question back then and I was able to recognize myself more as an athlete, I would have thought differently of that term. Right. And I, and I think all the work that Tim has referred to about uh, this population, I mean, in ACSM, we look at military medicine, uh, their athletes. We look at uh, different age groups, older folks versus younger folks versus pediatrics, Mm -hmm. and each one of them has different nuances we need to be aware of. In the performing arts world, you're going from hip-hop and ballet and a variety of dance genres to a variety of different, uh, uh, whether you're in an orchestra that's somewhat stationary to a marching band that's very uh, active and singers uh, so you're talking about a wide diversity of folks, uh, and each one of them may have different issues, and a lot of the physiology for any of those is not really well understood. And so there's lots of opportunities for research and to help this, these populations. 
Tim, I have a, one more question if I can, Steve, if you'll let me do this. because I, I shall allow it, yes. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put him on the spot, but I'm always fascinated. We always talk about what we can do to help the performing artists, but I'm always fascinated and it always my mental picture is when when uh, Michael Phelps walks out onto the to the pool deck before he's ready to swim or almost any athlete or any event before the game starts where there's loud music playing do we know about the effect of music on performance in a sport athlete is there any research that talks about if I listen to a particular rhythmic, rhythmic song before I do the 100-yard freestyle, that's going to help me versus a, a country western ballad or anything like that, Tim, that, that says how music might impact athletic performance? I, I, I personally don't know of any work out there on that area. I think that that would fall into probably the sports psychologist telling the athlete, whatever makes you the most relaxed or the most I guess, tuned in, zoned in to what you want us to do. We want you to do that. And mm -hmm. if so, if that's listening to that music, knock yourself out. Yeah, I, I just, I think it'd be a great research question to have a control group and a, uh, and a, a regular active group and, and just sort of let some of them listen to music and some of them not, and then be able to measure how their performance is affected. Yeah. That's a great point you bring up, Randy, because if you watch the basketball games, the NBA games, so when there's crowds before COVID, you know, there's music playing all the time whenever there's a, a pause in the action. And so when they went into that bubble, they were playing the same kind of music with nobody in the stands, nobody there at all. Um, and then they would go to commercial break, so we don't hear it. But they're always playing music consistently so that the athletes always felt like they're in their normal state. Because like even like baseball games, because the baseball games were so quiet, you could hear every swear word that the manager would yell at the umpire. <laughs> um, but they would play when that player came in from the bullpen. Nobody's there, but they still play their walk-in music. You know, they're playing Metallica or ACDC, Hell's Bells, or whatever it is. Um, and that's a fascinating point that like it's so ingrained having that kind of hype-up music. My daughter is a palm athlete, and they have their own hype music before they get ready to perform. And they, it's just like, they only think about not playing it. So that's a, it's so anecdotal. We see it all the time, but I don't think, yeah, that's a good point. No one's ever actually looked at whether or not there's an adrenaline change or a heart rate change or just for mental preparedness. As much as we talk about, again, uh, at least in athletes in the arts, we've talked a little bit about um, the performer and what we can take from sports medicine and exercise physiology that might help those folks. But we can also think the other direction and, and music um, and art have helped people with PTSD coming back from Afghanistan and, and other populations, uh, people with dementia. I think Glenn Campbell would be a great example of, of how music has helped, uh, helped him. And so there's just a real broad, uh, and one of the neat things about integrating the sport and the athlete is it can go both ways. It doesn't all have to go towards the performing artists. There's lots of value. And I think the NEA, National Endowment for the Arts, is, is focused on that to some degree of looking about the benefits of music and art uh, to the general population going back that other direction as well. Hey, so Tim, I've heard through the grapevine, you know, we're always talking about things behind your back about you. That um, you did research with NASA. So what was that about? So yeah, so we did uh, early in my career. I was uh, I was a child of the '60s, so I was very enamored with the space at, at race, and I was very fortunate in the early part of my career to work at NASA. 
we weren't uh, we were particularly interested in whether or not aerobic training actually made the astronauts worse when they came back uh, from space. Uh, and it's a long story, but there was a, a very good hypothesis that actually aerobic training would make them more prone to passing out when they came back in re-entry. Uh, and so a lot of my work at that time was looking at the effect of aerobic training and weight training uh, on astronaut performance. And um, it uh, led me to at least the first part of my career looking at the effects of blood pressure or exercise on blood pressure and a variety of other things. So that was because that was that thing. So that was, again, that was a, another unique kind of uh, group. I, I was fortunate. I was part of the team that did the physicals on the Challenger astronauts um, a, mo a month before they went up. Yeah, my time ended at NASA right before they actually launched. And I was actually back in Tennessee finishing up up the riding when that happened. Uh, and so that was a tragedy uh, for everybody involved. But uh, it was uh, there. Uh, the astronauts are a wonderful group of people that work very hard. And what's interesting is that we went away from that. I do a lot of my work really is now genetics and phys uh, physical activity. And we went away from that. But yet we have uh, Texas A&M is a space life sciences university. And we are just in the process of opening up a centrifuge facility to work with NASA in our department, as a matter of fact. And so one of some of my students are working in that. And I'm going, sometimes we can't run from this stuff. It, it, it chases us down over the years. But, but I've always been interested in extreme physiology, whether, again, it was race drivers, race car drivers, or astronauts, or musicians, or uh, different kinds of things. Those are, those are all fun places because, number one, there's not a lot of people there looking at that. But it's also, um, again, kind of fun environments to be in. So I think we need to make a pitch for a research grant for you to study your effects of playing music in the spaceship that takes us to Mars. <laughs> there you go. We're up in the sky lab. Playing yeah. music for a year. E Elon Musk may fund that. <laughs> Elon, if you're you're uh, listening, uh, you can find me at Texas A and M, uh, and I'll connect you with these other folks as well. So, Randy and Tim, tell us a little bit more about what's next for ACSM. What are some of the the goals you guys see in helping expand <laughs> ACSM in the next one to two years? Like in the ideal world, what would that look like? Well, I would say just a couple of historical things. First of all, when we, we sort of got Athletes in the Arts together in 2009, but we formally launched it at ACSM's national meeting in 2013. So ACSM has always been a founding partner here. And I think because of what I talked about earlier, the diversity of research and different folks that are involved in the college, uh, it offers a great opportunity to address some of the diversity of issues that we have in performing arts. We've created an interest group within ACSM on performing arts. We've been able to um, create uh, various uh, symposium at their national meeting. One of the most interesting one that we did recently was uh, interviewing somebody from the Blue Man Group. Um, which never talk. Um, so it was very interesting to actually talk to what life was like for somebody that was a part of the Blue Man Group. Um, but again, exposing these researchers and, as Tim said, young graduate students to areas of research that maybe haven't been tapped in. So part of my goal at ACSM is to really enhance that uh, that uh, uh, interest group and get more involved in, in getting um, educational materials and criteria symposium to uh, to the national conference. The other side of it for me would be uh, ACSM has, as Tim mentioned, certification. And we are working with the Performing Arts Medical Association 
to create some certification uh, around performing arts medicine so that physicians or athletic trainers or other folks, even, even educators, can get a better education around what the needs are of performing arts. And I think that's off the ground and moving a little bit, um, but it has the potential to grow even further. And, I, I, you know, Randy really summarized it very well. But I will also say that ACSM, um, like every other professional organization over the past year, has been really challenged with what happened with COVID. Uh, I was quite pr proud of the leadership of ACSM. They pivoted very, very quickly and started releasing materials on the safety of exercise during the pandemic. And they have continued to do that. Actually, you can hit their main website and you can see their COVID-19 exercise advice. Uh, and they have done a wide range of expert pieces uh, from people around the globe that uh, know what they're talking about, about the safety of exercise, when you can resume exercise, uh, when you can go back to play, uh, a variety of other topics. And so I think like many situations, ACSM has uh, shown that they're very flexible and that they pivoted to that direction very quickly in spite of the difficulties that the pandemic has caused not only ACSM, but also all the members of ACSM. Um, and I, so, I, so I think we're all looking forward to getting back towards uh, normal. We're doing our conference again this year is going to be virtual, which again is in, which is new for all of us. But uh, I think we all see a, a time down the road when we're going to be able to resume kind of the normal operations of the college uh, with face-to-face -face meetings and to get back to, to be able to see people like Randy, because Randy and I see each other at the, the national conference <laughs> and talk about these things kind of in the halls. And uh, so those are the, the things that we don't have right now that we're all that struggling to adjust to. And so but anyway, so I think that's the near future for ACSM. Well, sounds wonderful, guys. I really appreciate your time, Randy, Tim. Thank you very much for being our guest today on the podcast. Uh, it's amazing work you're doing. It's amazing work that ACSM has done over the decades. And uh, hopefully things will get normal here very soon and we can get back to uh, a better normal. And Steve, thank you and Yasi for coordinating all this. The last thing I would go is revisiting the exercises medicine concept. It's a concept that anyone listening to this needs to in, uh, embrace. Um, it's definitely something that we can apply better to our performing arts world. Hopefully you've understood that a little bit in our discussion today, but it's a message you can take away uh, in, all, in all of our lives to help you both mentally and physically uh, as, we, as we move on. And I, 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 I would wind guys. up by saying Oops, that the other three people on this podcast are wonderful and they are doing more to move performance and the arts forward than anybody else, including Randy Dick. Randy Dick is amazing. Woo! I don't know. Randy, you're awesome. <laughs> I don't know how he has the energy that he does. I've always joked that I'm going to hire him as my agent in the future. Uh, so, <laughs> but he's an amazing guy. And uh, without him, athletes in the arts would not exist. So Randy, can you share um, if anyone that's listening wants to learn more about ACSM or Athletes in the Arts, where they can go to? Sure. Uh, Athletes in the Arts website, I think it'll be included uh, in the materials on the podcast, but www.athletes, plural, and the arts, all one word, .com. Uh, And uh, my contact information is on there, so you can definitely reach out to me as well. And ACSM's website as well, www w.acsm.org. Uh, I would highly encourage people that are anywhere interested in, in the exercise field in any way to look at the website. Great resources there. And even if you join as just a, um, uh, a, a student member has very uh, 
inexpensive rates to be able to join. And the network that you build in this American College of Sports Medicine is amazing. Uh, and it's definitely worthwhile. Thank you. Great, guys. Well, thank you very much. Be well. And we'll look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, all. Good job. Thank you. Yasi, always a pleasure to co-host with you. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you. That does it for this episode. Thank you so very much for listening in today. If you like what you heard, please click subscribe and you'll get our podcast out to you as soon as they are available. For Yasi Ansari, this is Stephen Karaginas, and you've been listening to the Athletes in the Arts podcast. Mm-hmm.